please turn with me in your Bible to Romans 8, and we are in verse 15. We're going to backtrack just a little bit. Romans 8, verse 15. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the the truth that we were able to rejoice in and and worship you. We thank you that you've set us free. God, we thank you for these truths that are in this passage. We ask through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would take them off of the pages of our Bibles and write them deep into our hearts. We pray that in the midst of suffering, Lord, that we could hold fast to your character, to your truths, to your promises. Would you bring comfort and peace uh, to those that, that especially need it tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. At this point in Romans chapter 8, we address the topic of suffering. The first 14 verses, man, doesn't get any better. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The importance of being led by the Spirit, and the Spirit is ultimately what brings liberation in our lives. Then as we get to verse 15, reading down to verse 17, we're challenged with this concept of suffering. The rest of the chapter then really helps us to deal with the trials, the persecution, the suffering that we go through in life. If you're a note taker, write down three words that will help you remember Romans chapter 8. The first is condemnation, no condemnation. And then it goes to no consternation in Romans 8.28 because All things work together for good. And then finally, no separation. And so we have three very important things. Condemnation, consternation, and separation all dealt with in our lives. And the first has to do with the past. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a message God has been trying to get across to us in the last few weeks between Hebrews and Romans. Would you agree? Our sins are removed from us. God doesn't remember our sins anymore. We don't live in that place of guilt and shame. That deals with our past. Romans 8.28 deals with our present. Our present situations that we don't know how they're going to work out. We don't know how they're going to be completed. But God's hand, his sovereign hand, is upon them working for good. And then finally, as we look into the trials of the future, the perils that can and will come upon us, those things cannot separate us from the love of God. So let's begin in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. Joint heirs with Christ. Amazing, phenomenal. What's that going to be like? Then we're left with this concept. If we suffer with him, we'll also be glorified together. Christ's life was not immune of suffering, wasn't absent from suffering. In fact, really, suffering was his mission. He came for the purpose to die for our sin. He came for the purpose to be persecuted. It's through the suffering that resulted in our salvation. And following Jesus Christ and being a disciple of Jesus Christ, what we should understand is what we're signing up for is suffering. Much of the world today, when they make a decision for Jesus Christ, they understand that truth and that reality. And we're coming to understand it more in our cultural context as well. Jesus was very clear about that. 
And as we sang tonight, I have decided to follow Christ. Though none go with me, I'll follow. I've made, I've made that decision. But yet when suffering does come, it still surprises us, don't we? It's hard to, even though we know it biblically and we live in some expectation of suffering, when that suffering enters into our lives, it, it causes a little bit of shock to our systems. So Paul is giving us his own personal perspective on suffering in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So he's doing something here. He's contrasting the suffering with the glory that's going to be revealed. If we suffer with him, then we'll also be glorified with him. And he does the math. He says, I I consider, this is something that I've thought about, I've prayed about, I've pondered. I think it's important for us to do the same. Have you considered suffering? Have you pondered it and contrasted it to eternity? And he says, the suffering of this present time. Paul, like Christ, was familiar with suffering. His life was not easy. It was effective. It was fruitful. It was powerful. But it was not easy. I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22. If you want to turn there, you can. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-two through 28. Paul just lists his sufferings, all that he's going through. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they of the seed of Abraham? So am I. Paul is comparing to his critics, and he's saying, are my critics Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are my critics Israelites? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In laborings, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. That's pretty quick to read, but what is he saying? I got whipped. I got whipped above measure. In prison, more frequently. Like one time wouldn't be enough. He was a frequent visitor of prison. It's like playing Monopoly and you get thrown in jail again. It's like I'm a frequent visitor of jail in the game of Monopoly. He was a frequent visitor in prison, in deaths often. We see that recorded in the book of Acts. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Why not 40? Because the law said that you could only go up to 39 times. And so he was beaten, whipped 39 times on five different occasions. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and night I have spent in the deep. That's a whole lot. Three times he was beaten with rods. What was that like? Once I was stoned, not in the context of Colorado and what our new laws. <laughs> this is with a physical rock. He was, had rocks thrown at him. Three times I was shipwrecked. A whole night he spent in the sea. In journeys often, at difficult time traveling, in perils of the water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils in Fort Collins, in perils in Pueblo, in perils in Albuquerque, in perils among false brethren. When you read about Paul's life, everywhere he went, there was peril, wasn't there? Because he brought the message of Jesus Christ. 
and weariness and toil and sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst and fasting, often as you study that and look that up, it's not in willfully choosing to fast, though I'm sure he did often. This was because he had no food to eat is what he's referring to in cold and nakedness. There's times where he's just cold and naked because of his suffering. I don't know about you, but I don't like being cold. Does anybody like just enjoy being cold? Especially if you can't get out of it. It's one thing if you're hot, you can usually find some shade or the, the breeze comes, but if you're cold, you, you can't escape it, you know. And he's cold and nakedness. And then he says, beside the other things which comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all of the churches. Now follow my line of thinking here. Paul lists his suffering. Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4. So you're already in 2 Corinthians 11. And then just look at 2 Corinthians 4. Go a little bit to the left in your Bible. And Paul, once again, he describes his attitude on his suffering in verses 16 through 18. It says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Can I get an amen on that one? Yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Did I read that right? Did he just call his sufferings light? How in the world can he call getting stoned and shipwrecked and no clothes, no food, perils everywhere that he turns, and he goes, this is pretty light. Not that it's not difficult, but he says that it's light. That's his perspective on his suffering, and this is why. He realizes that it's momentary, it's temporary. I want you to say this out loud in just, just a moment, and it's going to be this, this sentence. My trials are temporary, okay? I'm going to say it one more time. My trials are temporary. Now, on the count of three, it's your turn. Say it like you mean it. One, two, three. My do they ever feel like they're eternal? <laughs> Absolutely. Do we need to be reminded that they're temporary? Yes. So he knows that his trials are temporary. And then he also knows that the trials, the suffering, is working a far more exceeding eternal weight and glory. God actually uses suffering more than anything else. It's going to be worth it in the long run. Very plain and simple, the reason that Paul could have this perspective on trials is because he's mo, more, fo mo, <laughs> mo focused. <laughs> he's more focused. <laughs> uh, he's more focused. Sometimes they just don't come out right. He's more focused on eternity than he is on this temporal life. It's been said by K.P. Yohannan and said, well, you have to have eternity stamped upon your eyes. We've got to look past the things of this world and look to the glory that we're going to have with Jesus Christ, the glory that we're going to have with the Father. And then he says in verse 18, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. 
This is walking by faith. This is a spiritual discipline. These are all the trials that I'm going through. Seems like that they're never going to end, but I know the promise that God has given to me of eternal life. And that ties in to where we are in Romans 8. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which was revealed in us. In verse 19, for the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. This gets my imagination going. This gets my curiosity going. Creation is doing more in worship of God than a lot of times we think. Remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem? There was quite the stir. People were worshiping Christ. The Pharisees were trying to squash the worship, diminish the worship. And Jesus said, if they don't worship me, if they don't cry out, the rocks will cry out. The rocks will begin to worship. I wonder what it's going to be like in the culmination of all things if the trees and the rocks are going to break forth in song. But we do know right now, this evening, that all aspect of creation, the physical world around us, is longing for the redemption of the sons of men. If you've ever read any of Tolkien's uh, writings, he, he wrote The Hobbit, he wrote The Lord of the Rings, and now they've been made into big action movies. He tries to depict the trees and, and their, their role, and they kind of come to life, and they, they have some, a part to play. And obviously it's a fiction story, but you can kind of see Tolkien's imagination with a truth like this, a biblical truth that creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. In verse 24, the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. When Adam and Eve sinned, God did curse creation, didn't he? He did curse the earth as a consequence of sin. He said, Adam, because you've sinned, now there's going to be thorns. Now there's going to be weeds. Now you're going to have to work for your food. And God put it into this place. He, he subjected it. God subjected it to futility with the purpose of hope. This isn't permanent. At one point, God is going to make all things right. In verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from bondage of corruption into glorious liberty of the children of God. So we're suffering and we're longing for the day that we're going to be glorified. Creation is also suffering. Creation is also groaning and is longing for the redemption of the sons of God. Well, there will no longer be in that place of bondage, in that place of, of suffering. Isaiah 65 verse 24 and 25 tells us a little bit of what this is going to be like when things are made right. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are speaking, I will hear, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. That would be pretty neat to be able to see, the wolf and the lamb. I guess there's a, a wolf exhibit that's west of Woodland Park, a past divide. Anybody gone to see that? Well, we've never gone because there's an age limit where they pretty much say, don't bring kids under eight because they might get eaten by the wolves. So... For real, I'm not making it up. I mean, they, they put it a little nicer than that, but they, they say something like, we don't recommend bringing kids under eight. And then your imagination goes, because they might get eaten, <laughs> right? But for whatever reason, they're concerned enough where they're saying, don't bring your little kids uh, around these wolves. But eventually the wolf is going to lay down with the lamb and they're just gonna feed together. The lion shall eat straw with the ox and dust shall be like the serpent's food 
They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. We're experiencing creation in its fallen state, and it's wonderful. It's glorious, but it is fallen, and eventually we'll experience it in its complete redeemed state. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. So what are some of the birth pains of creation? Matthew 24, verse 7 and 8, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famine, pestilence, earthquakes in various places, and all these are the beginning of sorrows or birth pains. Every tornado, earthquake, hurricane is creation letting us know that it longs for something better, that there is a, a redemption of the, the sons of men. Moms, you know this well, birth pains are for the purpose of birth. Otherwise, they'd be completely pointless and ridiculous, but they do produce life. So all of these birth pains are resulting in something. They're leading towards something. They're leading towards the second coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 23, not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. So we look at creation that's groaning, but there's a guarantee that's given us. There's a first fruits that's given us, and that's the Holy Spirit. God gives us this down payment. He gives us this guarantee it says, you've received the spirit of adoption, and someday you'll understand the fullness of adoption. It'll be completed, but for right now, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and that's a great first fruits, and the Holy Spirit is a wonderful comforter that's been given to us. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So creation groans, but also Christians groan. God's children groan. One of the biggest misnomers, I think, that happens around, around uh, man, I just, I'm tongue-tied tonight. Hmm. One of the biggest misnomers that happens to us as believers is we think that in our suffering, we can't grieve or be heartbroken or have any kind of honesty about the pain that we're going through. We read verses like we, we just read, and so we think that well, we must walk around with this superficial kind of, of joy. No. I think what this verse tells us is that the pain still hurts. The trials of this life, they, they cut deep. It, it, it doesn't take away the pain. If that were the case, then there wouldn't be any groaning. But the groaning is real as we go through these trials and we groan within ourselves because we eagerly wait for the adoption, the, the redemption of our body. So I think joy isn't this superficial type of thing, but it's in the midst of the pain, having that, that trust in the Lord. Do you find yourself longing for things to be made right? Even in the midst of, if everything just seems to come together and you have a great day or a great five minutes or a great 15 minutes, you're, this is wonderful, but I'm still longing for a little bit more. And then you have those days where everything just hits the fan and you're really longing for things to be made right. Here's what I suggest to you is it's the spirit of God who's moving inside of your heart that's saying you're not gonna be content until you're home with the Lord. You're not gonna be content until that place. And so there's that groaning that goes on inside of us that we're waiting for the adoption. We're waiting for the redemption of our body, our body to be glorified. In verse 24 for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. 
For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. If we could see it, it wouldn't be hope. In order for it to be hope, we can't see it. So we hope in the redemption. We hope in the adoption to be fulfilled. And we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So our hope is not passive. And that's what I hope you understand. As we are in that condition of trusting in the Lord, is that we would be in that place of perseverance. And perseverance is not simply just waiting, but it's continuing to move forward in the things that God has for you. This really spoke to me today. I hope that it it speaks to you as well. As you're waiting for the redemption of all things and waiting to be in God's presence, keep moving forward in perseverance. If God has put a direction on your heart and your life and you're moving forward in that direction and it's difficult, you keep moving forward in perseverance. There's so much in the Bible about perseverance. Keep going. Long obedience in the right direction. I don't see it. I don't know where this is leading, but I trust my good shepherd. I trust my heavenly father. I'm gonna continue persevering in that attitude of hope. In verse 26, likewise, the spirit also helps in our weakness. Praise the Lord. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Ever been there? You're so crushed by the loss. So crushed by the trial. Trials come in all different shapes and sizes. And they bring us to a place of, I don't know what to do. I don't even know what to say. I don't know what to pray. And we find ourselves in those moments of complete brokenness and our spirit is simply groaning. With things that cannot be uttered. (sighs) Father, please. Those moments. And then the Holy Spirit takes that and intercedes on our weakness and our behalf, takes that up to the Father and prays according to the will of the Father. We thought, I thought that was absolutely meaningless. No, it's not meaningless. We're in that place with the Lord, in that place of that sleepless night, in that place of despair and discouragement, pouring out our hearts before the Lord, our words in, and the Holy Spirit comes. Some think that this is referring to speaking in tongues. I don't think so, and let me tell you why. Speaking in tongues is biblical. I think it is a gift that God gives to the church today. But every time that you see gifts, in, or excuse me, tongues in the book of Acts, it's always describing the wonderful works of God. It's praise. And so I think tongues is something different than this. This is just speaking of the brokenness that we go through where there's absolutely no words left to be uttered. And this is talking about the suffering that we go through and not necessarily the tongues that God gives to us in worship. We look at verse 27. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So we don't know how we should pray sometimes. Sometimes the situation's so complex, we don't know what the will of the Father is. All we can do is groan in that place of confusion and, and the weight of the trials upon us, but the Holy Spirit searches the hearts. The Holy Spirit knows the mind of the Father, and then he intercedes according to the will of God. 
Do you know the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Do you know why the Holy Spirit was given? Is the Holy Spirit given primarily for our experience or for our help? And what I mean by experience is all these wonderful things, these emotions that we experience. Nothing wrong with the emotions, but the reason that the Holy Spirit was given was to be our helper. Jesus told us that. In John 14, going through 16, he says the Holy Spirit's going to come and be your comforter and be your helper. And in the Greek, that's one who comes alongside to help. And that's every aspect of what the Spirit of God's doing in our lives. You can't do this on your own? Let me come alongside and help. You can't love the way that you're supposed to? Let me come alongside and help. You don't know what you should pray? Let me come alongside and help. This is a beautiful picture of what the Holy Spirit is in our lives. There's no reason why that we should feel uncomfortable with the work of the Spirit in our lives. Here it is, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, well-deserving. It deserves all of it. In verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This verse begins with we know. Do we know? That's an important question to ask ourselves. Are we in that place of trusting in the midst of the suffering? Suffering's the context. In the midst of this trial that I'm going through, I know, I trust, I believe, I'm confident in God's promises. The next part of this is all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things is all-inclusive. All-inclusive never means all-inclusive in life. The batteries are not included. But when God says all, he means all, doesn't he? This encompasses all things. Everything that we go through, get the news from the boss that you've just been let go. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Get the diagnosis of cancer. All things work together for good to those who love God. Get the call that a loved one's been paralyzed in an accident. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We don't see it, we don't understand it, but yet we trust it. God, in your sovereign plan, you're working good even though it seems that there is no good in this situation. And then it says, work together for good. And we have to come to a biblical interpretation of this. This isn't a promise that things are always going to work out my way. This is good according to his purpose. Look at the end of verse 28. Who are called according to his purpose. This is what God sees and what he plans and what's important to his counsel and his economy. And his ways are not our ways. And who can know the ways of God? So God in his sovereignty might say, Eric, here's some suffering in your life, but it's going to result in these people coming to know Christ as their Savior. And I'm sitting here going, this does not feel good. This doesn't look good. Even my friends are not describing it to me as good, but Lord, I trust you. And though whether I see it or not, you're going to bring about good according to your perspective. But if I think if it's good towards my perspective, I think I get a misunderstanding of verse 28. Because my perspective might mean that I come out financially ahead. Or my perspective may mean that I'm going to get cured of cancer. 
And sometimes that is the case. But sometimes it, it's not the case. So it's not good according to my perspective. It's good according to God's perspective, which is far better, even though it's painful. Have you ever thought something was good, but then came to find out it was far from good? It was actually terrible. It was rotten. Think of a whole bunch more adjectives. But I thought it was good. I'm sure it was good. It turned out not to be good. You probably dated somebody at some point in your life that you thought it would have been good to marry. But you didn't marry them. And then you ran into him 10 years later and you realized how good it was that you didn't marry them. What you thought was good was actually not good. High school students tonight, remember that. College students, remember that, you know? It's good from God's perspective. This is a conditional uh, promise, and you're saying, in what terms? To those who are called according to his purpose, to those who love God. This means that God's hand is on our lives in a unique way compared to an unbeliever. An unbeliever doesn't have this promise. If they come to know Christ as their Savior, they will have this promise, but this is a unique way in which God works among his people. Once you love the Lord and you're called according to his purpose, he says, I'm gonna begin working in the situations of your life and causing it to be good according to my purpose. No greater example of this than the life of Joseph. God begins to speak to Joseph at a young age and gives him dreams and he begins to speak those dreams which results in his brothers getting very jealous. Didn't help that he got the coat of many colors from dad as well. Everybody else was wearing khakis and a white t-shirt and here he comes with the multicolored jacket. On top of that, it appears Joseph didn't have to work while the rest of the brothers did. Joseph then, as the youngest, got to go out to the fields and just see how the work was going. The brothers say, we're tired of this. We're killing this guy. One of the brothers speaks up, says, no, let's, let's throw him into this pit. Let's sell him as a slave. Here goes Joseph as a young man to be a slave in Egypt. God, I thought your hand was upon my life. I thought you worked all things together for good. To those that love you and are called according to your purpose. You gave me these dreams. Here he is working hard in Potiphar's house. Gets accused of raping the boss's wife. I think the boss probably knew deep in his heart who was lying. But how could he stand up to his wife in that way? So Joseph gets thrown into prison. God, I thought your hand was in my life. Here comes the butler and the baker, and they both have dreams. Joseph interprets the dream. The baker gets executed. The butler goes back to his position. He says, would you remember me? Nope, he totally forgot Joseph for two years. Joseph continues to be faithful. God's with him. He is put in charge of the prison as a prisoner. All of a sudden, the Pharaoh has some dreams from the hand of God, and the butler remembers, I remember this guy in prison who interpreted my dreams. Get Joseph. Make sure he shaves. Joseph cleans up, interprets the dreams, and before we know it, Joseph is second in command of Pharaoh. Who comes looking for food? Nobody else but his brothers. His father dies. His brothers are afraid that Joseph will turn his back on him. And Joseph 
utters the same promise. Thousands of years earlier, at the end of Genesis, he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God didn't approve of the evil that his brothers did, but God was above the evil. God worked his plan in spite of the evil that was committed to put Joseph right in the place that God wanted him to be. See, even people's evil decisions don't cancel out the promise of Romans 8.28. At the end of Joseph's life, he was able to see it and understand it. Lay hold of that promise tonight. Verse 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God has complete, absolute foreknowledge. He can see into the future. And with his foreknowledge, he predestines, he chooses us to be conformed to his image. It's been explained this way, that God sees all things from the Goodyear blimp perspective and looks down upon our lives and sees our lives sees the decision that we would make in trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior, sees those who would reject Jesus Christ as their Savior. His predestination is based upon his foreknowledge. The foreknowledge of God and that he would still yet choose us should cause us to be overwhelmed with the love of God. Because what this is saying is God knows everything about us, but yet he still chose us. And yes, he would see at some point in time that we would trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, but he'd also see all of our struggles. And he says, I've put my love upon you. I love you. I've predestined you. This is a seal, a stamp of God's love for us. And notice what it says. This is God's mission for our lives, to conform us to the image of Christ. So this also puts Romans 8.28 into context. If suffering allows me to become more like Jesus, from God's perspective, it was good. Because <laughs> that's what he's about. He's about saving people and conforming me to the image of his son. And without suffering, a lot of times, the transformation doesn't take place. Haven't you found that to be true? It's through the suffering that brings us into the image of Christ, if we're willing. This is a great truth. Underline it, memorize it, Facebook, tweet it, put it on a banner, get excited about it. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called, whom he called, these he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. What tense are all of those in? I don't know. I didn't do very good in English. <laughs> past tense. They're all past tense. Predestined called, justified, glorified. God chose us, he called us, he justified us, which means he's declared us righteous, and he has glorified us. From his perspective, it's already done. He sees us as a finished work. Verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? What should our response be to these things? How does it move us that God would justify us and glorify us and call us if God is for us? Who can be against us? Think about that for a few moments. Who's greater than God? No one. So if God is for you, then who can be against you? They're going to come against you. You will have opposition, but the victory's already been won in the Lord. How do we know that God's for us? And what does that even mean? Again, we need biblical interpretation. 
God being for us doesn't mean that God's going to give us every selfish whim. I hope you understand that. That's really not someone being for you that just gives you every selfish whim. What it means for God to be for us is that he loves us in the fullest capacity of love, of, of agape love, that he's our father, that he's our, our bridegroom, that he's displayed love. And this is how we know that God is for us. This is what we can bank on in verse 32. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also give us all things? We know God's for us because he did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. So we know that he'll freely give us all things. And again, the context here of his character is he's freely going to give us all good things. He's not going to give us things that he knows are going to destroy us. He's not going to give us every selfish desire, but he's going to freely give us all good things. So that means in the midst of suffering, we get confused. We don't understand. Go, God, you're good, but this just feels so terrible. And I'm at this place where I don't even know what I should pray, and when I think about it, all I can do is groan, and, but God, I know you're good because you gave your son for me, and because you gave your son for me, I trust that you will not withhold any good thing. It just doesn't feel good. It doesn't look good. It doesn't taste good, but I know it is good because you are good. I think God gives us children to show us the depth of the love between the father and the son. You understand it some when you're a child. You understand that your, your parents, parents love you, but you don't understand it fully until you become a parent. Would you agree with that? You realize there's a depth here that I fully didn't understand. I don't want to give you the wrong idea that, you know, parenting is challenging, I understand that. And I have my challenges in parenting, absolutely. But there's also so many joys in parenting. It causes this depth of love that I can't even find words for. Last night, Wyatt was a little bit under the weather and he was just feeling crummy and he's fussy and you know, couldn't get him to calm down. And with the girls, the three older girls, we could always get them to calm down. But he just got to the place where he's just like, quit messing with me. So what did I succumb to? Thomas the choo-choo train at mid the middle of the night. Me and the boy sitting on the couch. We're going to watch some Thomas and Choo Choo Train. And they calmed down. And he loved the, the two episodes that did it enough, enough for him. Man, praise the Lord for Thomas the Choo Choo Train. <laughs> I don't know what they do in the jungles of Africa, but we were watching Ch Thomas the Choo Choo Train. And so he's ready to go back to bed, and he's got his, his little blanket. And his great aunt made it for him, and, and it's his favorite. And he's getting better at, at, at talking. And he says... Dad, dirty corner, dirty corner. Help me find the dirty corner. And on his blanket, he sucks his two fingers and he always uses the same corner. And you watch him and he turns his blanket like this in his bed till he gets to his one corner and he rubs his dirty corner with his left hand and then he puts his fingers in his mouth and he goes to sleep. So now he's old enough to know that it's dirty because he rubs it all the time but it's still his favorite, you know? And I, I just got the biggest kick out of that. And I was like, that is so funny. You know, it just touched my heart. And he's, he's my boy. My girls are my girls. And I can't think of giving them up for anyone. And I'm sure that you're the same way as a parent, but here God didn't spare his own son for you. So try that on for size. 
God loves you enough that he gave his son for you. So in the midst of trial, you can trust him. I know that some of you are going through some things that are so deep and so difficult. They're far more than I could ever know or another human could know, but God knows. And this verse has been an anchor for my soul over the years. As I've gone through trials that I didn't understand, I go, God, I know you're good. I don't understand this trial, but I know you're good because you didn't spare your son for me. That's where you have to anchor your soul in the midst of suffering. No matter the size of the suffering, whether it's a 10, a 5, or a 2, we look back at the cross and we anchor our soul there. In verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? So, so who's going to bring condemnation against someone who's God's chosen? It's God who justifies. Someone will try, but it's not their decision. It's not their choice to bring the condemnation. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf, but so is Christ. And when people try to condemn us, when we try to condemn ourselves, when Satan tries to condemn us, Jesus is there before the Father saying it's paid in full. I've already paid for this. I've already died for this. They're forgiven. Christ is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And here's the confidence we have for the future. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Can any trial remove you from the love of Christ? Can any distress remove you from his love? Persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? The answer is none of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. Notice the emphasis, the love of Christ displayed upon the cross. As it is written, for your sakes we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. A quote from Psalms 44 verse 2. Being in Christ, being loved by Christ, doesn't mean that we'll be immune from tribulation and persecution. In fact, we're given over to those things. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. We've already conquered because Christ has risen. We may not feel like we're more than conquerors, but the biblical truth is that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We claim this promise by faith in our resurrection position in Christ. For I'm persuaded against Paul is convinced. He's considered these things. He's landed in his heart and mind that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Death can't separate you from God's love. If you're in Christ, when you die, you go home to be with the Lord. But life can't separate you from God's love either. All the trials that happen in life, angels and principalities, they can't separate you from God's love. Satan and his attack cannot separate you from God's love. Christ is greater. Nor things present, anything going on in your life tonight cannot separate you from God's love. Nor things to come. The things that we worry about the future. No separation. No height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're inseparable from the love of God. Would you pray with me? Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would you now plant these truths deep into our hearts? 
May we be that good, fertile soil. No condemnation. We're in you. Nothing for us to worry about. No consternation. All things work together for good. We trust that. We believe that, Father. And we lay hold of the truth that there's no separation in Christ Jesus. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen.